Welcome to the Black Theatre History Podcast, where we seek to celebrate the people, the plays, and the rich stories of the American theatre's African-American history makers. I'm Katie Sane. Today, we're joined by the award-winning scholar, educator, and artist, Dr. Khaled Long, who will be teaching us about the incomparable Glenda Dickerson. Dr. Khaled Yaya Long is an assistant professor of theater and coordinator of theater studies at Columbia College, Chicago. He is also a freelance dramaturg with a focus on production dramaturgy, new play development, and audience engagement. Khaled's scholarly essays appear in Continuum, the Journal of African American Diaspora Drama, Theater, and Performance, as well as in the Routledge Companion to African American Theater and Performance. His most recent scholarship includes essays in theater design and technology, the Drama Review, and the edited collection Critical Essays on the Politics of Oscar Hammerstein II. Khaled is currently at work on two book projects. The first, Acts of Rebellion, Activism, and Solidarity in Contemporary Black Theater and Performance, which is co-edited with Duran S. Williams and Martine Green Rogers, and Glenda Dickerson, an architect of Black feminist performance. We are so excited to learn about Glenda Dickerson from him today. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, I'm actually really excited. This is the first conversation that I've had for the podcast with someone about someone. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I have only interviewed the sources up to this point. And so you're the first person that we get to have talking about um, someone that they are an expert about. And so I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Awesome. Um, but so we're here to talk about Glenda Dickerson. Um, I will confess that one of the reasons that I'm most excited to talk to you is because you're doing the work to make more information available about her. And I love this idea that you describe her in all of your ways as an artisan and pedagogue, I think are the words that you used in your own dissertation. Uh, But could you explain the breadth of her work for us? So, you know, yes. So first of all, thank you for having me and thank you for giving me this opportunity to share my work around Glenda Dickerson. Glenda Dickerson is an artist whose career spans over 40 years. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking in terms of the 1960s when she was a student at Howard University after graduating from Howard University with a BA. Could you name her uh, professor for us? Well, several professors, right? And so it's interesting because I actually, I recognize that she, that most folks, they name Owen Dodson, you know, a Black theater luminary. And she named the theater after him, yes? Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, Yes. and she had a production in his honor as well, several productions in his honor. But she also was trained and mentored by Eleanor Trailer, Mm -hmm. Ted Shine, James Butcher, Anne Cook-Reed, Marion McMichael, Whitney LeBlanc. Those are the folks that Glenda considered to be mentors, the folks that she studied under. And in fact, I interviewed Glenda's brother several years ago when I was writing my dissertation. And he said, you know, Owen Dodson taught Glenda a lot about theater and performance, particularly the classics and the Greeks. Mm-hmm. But it was Eleanor Trailer that she modeled herself after. Uh, she was a professor at Howard University. She was a professor of African-American literature, African literature and culture. And I also interviewed Eleanor as well. And they actually, you could consider them to be best friends. Okay. And Eleanor Trailer, I think, 
you know, Glenda modeled herself after her because she was a black woman doing that very important work at that time, right? Mm -hmm. And so we also take into the consideration how gender plays a part in that. So in other words, a black woman seeing a black woman do this kind of work. What's interesting though, is that actually it was black women that inspired Glenda to go into theater. Mm -hmm. In my dissertation and also in my book project, I talk about how, you know, Glenda Dickerson, you know, her, her introduction to theater happened quite early, you know, middle school and high school. And she, I read that her grandmother was her first model as a director. Yes, in a sense, right? In the context of, you know, Black women being empowering, um, modeling her type of intuition, and also in a sense of like aesthetics as well, right? And so, but in, 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 and so Glenda was very interested in poetry early on, oral, you know, like speaking and reciting poems and so forth. And that's what she did in high school. And her father saw this, her father, and he ended up sharing with her a newspaper article one morning while she was eating breakfast, a high school student. And the article was this editorial on Ellen Stewart and how she was starting this theater company what we now know as La Mama. Mm -hmm. And and Glenda at that time, and I, and I think this is something that she still uh, recognized even to her death, that Lorraine Hansberry was one of her inspirations and A Raisin in the Sun was one of her favorite plays. She would often perform monologues from A Raisin in the Sun during school competitions and so forth. You know, these moments where she was able to recite some of the monologues and perform. And Glenda said early on, you know, it was Lorraine Hansberry and, Le and Ellen Stewart that inspired me to do this work in theater and to go and study theater because what I saw was Black women doing this. And I said, I too can do that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so Glenda, you know, as I was saying, she, you know, she, she graduated from Howard. She ended up teaching at Howard for several years. And ironically, she became a professor of Debbie Allen and Felicia Rashad and many other artists and scholars and practitioners that we are familiar with today. Glenda was a professor of theirs. I know you asked the question. I'm not even sure if I'm still on this. No, we're, and, they, and I think we're, yeah, I have so many questions, right? Um, and they do all run together, so it's fine. But uh, one of the things that I think we're, we're moving around and that you're actually addressing is this idea of how we would describe her work. Because you've talked about her as an academic. You've talked about her as a professional. Um, I'm wondering, I, I do want to set some framework for our listeners that uh, she had both a very successful professional career and yes. after doing the New York thing and doing the Broadway thing um, that she also then committed herself to uh, more community-based work. And I will say that this is where I personally, aside from the womanist stuff, like this is where her work really interests me. Yes. So um, yes, I can talk about that a little bit actually. So, you know, it's interesting because when I talk about Glenda, I say, you know, she was a playwright. She was a director. She was a folklorist. She was a performer, adapter, conceiver. She was a teacher, right? Um, it's interesting because those who were taught by Glenda called her the professor, as I was told. Her, she was the professor. And so, you know, she started off like many theater artists, like many of us and many folks during her time, right? Being trained in theater through a very conventional model. And then branching off. Glenda in the 1960s and the 1970s, you know, being very much a central figure in the development of the Black theater movement in Washington, D.C., right? 
and also, you know, being inspired by Black nationalism at that time and a lot of the connections to the African diaspora. So really sort of challenging even her own ideas about what theater is and expanding on that as well, right? We often celebrate her as a director and she was so much more. And I even make that argument in my own work. I always say, you know, she's often thought of as this premier director, but she was so much more. She began, you know, her career began as a director primarily, and she directed for lots of major theaters throughout the country. I mean, the New Federal Theater, the Negro Ensemble Company, the Seattle Repertory Theater, the John F. Kennedy Center, Crossroads Theater Company, the St. Louis Black Rep, right? Major theaters. And she established herself as one of the premier women, Black women directors of her time, alongside others. Like there's Vinette Carroll, um, there's... Um, uh, gosh, there's someone whose name... In their time, she and Vinette Carroll were the only two that directed on Broadway, correct? They were the yes. only two yes. American women. Yes. She, so Glenda was the second Black woman to direct on Broadway. Vinette Carroll was the first. Glenda was the second with the 1971 production of Reggae, A Musical Revelation. Interestingly, though, a week before the show opened, Glenda was fired. I don't think I knew that. Glenda was fired <laughs> a week. A week before the show opened. And so when you hear people talk about this controversial moment that Glenda had with, you know, mainstream commercial theater, in particular, we're talking about Broadway, that is when she began to sort of turn her attention away from mainstream theater. Now, here's the deal. That was 1971. So throughout the 70s and even into the 80s, Glenda turned her attention to works that she was conceiving and directing and putting up and saving at various places. But she also began to direct the works of many main Black women playwrights of the time. And so I think about Alexis DeVoe, you think about Aisha Rahman, you think about PJ Gibson, you're thinking about Shea Youngblood. She began to direct their works at mm-hmm. major theaters throughout the country. And this is when I argue that at that moment is when Glenda really began to turn her attention to women-centered works. Okay. Right? So she stayed, she's directing these works by Black women playwrights. And in most of their plays, or most of the plays that they, they, they were writing were centering Black women as well, right? Ironically, a lot of the women I just named are in the anthology by that Margaret Wilkerson edited, right? Yes. Nine Black plays by nine Black women or something like that, right? Um, that very important moment. Glenda was directing their works at major theaters throughout the country. Crossroads, St. Louis Black Rap, Second Stage, No Smoking Playhouse in New York City, the Hansberry Sands Theater in Milwaukee, Right? But at the same time, keep in mind, Glenda was always a professor as well. So in addition to her career in mainstream theater or commercial theater or regional theater, right, depending on how you identify those arenas, Glenda was also a professor and she was able to establish herself as a trainer, a director, a mentor, right, during that, during those periods as well. So, you know, she's at Rutgers, she's at Spelman College. Um, In fact, she was at Spelman College and then she left Spelman in 1997, I think. And she ended up going to University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And that's actually where she passed in 2012. And so, you know, she turns her, her eye towards sort of more community-oriented works. And Glenda said it herself, right? In one of her essays, she says, you know, I, academia allowed me a space to create the type of works that I always wanted to do, right? without the constraints of conventional theater. Right. 
And I think there's a quote, she says something like, you know, my, my aesthetic or my vision could not be contained by yes. these attention sick dramas yes. right, that folks wanted, right? That mainstream theater wanted, yeah. Can we use that as a transition to talk about the womanist attitude, that woman-centered work. Um, yes. I'm, I'm revisiting a lot of Shange right now. And so um, I've been really thinking about Alice Walker's, you know, woman assist a feminist as yep. <laughs> purple as the lavender yep. uh, and that whole quote. And um, I was kind of surprised. I had not learned about the production No um, that Glenda Dickerson worked on, which then of course, Woody King saw this work of poetry and music in it. So I'm, I'm wondering how you can talk about that womanist attitude as it relates to black theater for her yes. um, and how it translated into the plays she helped create. Yes. So here, it, it, I'm going to give a little background context on that. So one of the things that I also do in my work is I make the argument that Glenda, in addition to being a director, in addition to being a playwright, adapter, conceiver, Glenda was also a progenitor of Black feminist theater theory. In the late, in the you know 1980s, when feminist theater theory was developing, thanks to the work of you know Elaine Aston, Sue Ellen Case, Jill Dolan, Elizabeth Goodman, you know, and so many others. Thanks to their work, you know, they were developing this feminist theater theory, which really sort of shaped the field of theater, I would argue, since, right? We, we can, we, you know, we cannot look at theater the same thanks to their works, right? Really, you know, being critical and analyzing the ways in which women, gender, sexuality has been illustrated and shows up in past works and how we now take up those issues in our works today. But one of the things that was not being considered um, as a central factor was race and class to some degree and the ways in which they intersect. Glenda jumps in and was like, no, 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 no. We're not going to do this. But again, academia gave her that entryway. Right. Right. And so Glenda, you know, very, very smart, you know, friends to some degree with many of the Black feminist theorists and scholars of that time, you know, so in many ways she, her own approach to theater, her own feminist and or womanist attitude was shaped by her relationships with these women. And more emphatically also recognized her own oppression, right? Mm. Back on the incident on Broadway in the 1970s. And in fact, Glenda, her first essay was the cult of true womanhood toward a a womanist attitude in African-American theater. And in this, in this essay, she really lays out her ideas about Black women in theater. And as I argue, not only does she sort of share her own subjective experiences, she's theorizing a Black woman's idea about the need and necessity of theater and performance and what it can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this essay, I mean, she's, met, she's naming, you know, early race women, so Joyner Truth, um, she's talking, she's inspired by Zona Hurston. And she's talking about, and to use, I, I think she, she has the quote, Black women were triply locked out by race, class, and history. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. often what she's theorizing in this moment is what we now consider to be this notion of intersectionality. And, and she refers to that in regards to like the, 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 I mean, this is where, as a woman, mm-hmm. I recognize the self-perpetuation of the curse 
uh, and how women buy into the curse as its own notion and how whiteness uh, continues to perpetuate what that is. And from there, she found these other intersections that as I went back and was really looking at, I was like, she had language for this. Yes. Way before. Yes. We were paying well, attention. I'm glad you said that because this is part of my argument, right? She had the language and that language, she had the language around black, you know, she had a black feminist theoretical language that was developing at that time. And I argue that she participates in the development of it, particularly in the context of theater and performance. Mm -hmm. Remember, this is 1987, two years before Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality. Right. So this is in 1987 that Glenda is, that she first gave this speech at AFA, at an AFA conference, and, and in particular at a women in theater pre-conference, right? Um, and then it ended up being published twice, first in Theater Journal and then again in Sue Ellen Case's book, Feminism in Theater. So, and remember, in 1987 was the same year that Barbara Christian published her very important essay, A Race for Theory, where she's talking about, you know, understanding the ways in which we are examining and analyzing works by and about Black women. Mm -hmm. And saying that we need, to, we need to develop a particular kind of language to understand what these works are doing. And, you know, and so Glenda was doing this at the same time within the context of theater and performance. Can, can you help us separate her work in terms of articulating? So like part of the work that she was doing is, and part of the reason that we have access to this is because she did do the papers and the presentations and it was published and we do have some record of that. But I'm also interested in the work she was creating. Right. Um, so her focus on myth and her focus on folklore and her focus on these classics and I will not say deconstructing, I will say reconstructing those stories in this like black womanist way. Right. Um, I mean, Khalid, you're a dramaturg. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, of her plays, which do you think might be uh, uh, the strongest example of that reconstruction of an existing tale into that. So here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing about Glenda. And this is where it like really makes me mad when I'm doing <laughs> my writing about her. Glenda challenged conventional ways of doing theater, which includes conventional scripts. Mm -hmm. They don't exist. That's what I, yeah. They don't exist. From a pedagogical, dramaturgical, <laughs> scholarly standpoint, that's beautiful. I can theorize about that. But when you also need like the scripts to get into, like what actually was this play doing? Mm -hmm. It don't exist. I've spoken to many people, Jennifer Nelson, Frida Scott Giles, the director, Surrett Scott, right? Like many people who have worked with Glenda, they were like, oh, they, we, we didn't do that. We just got in the room and Glenda would say this and I would say that and we would improvise and we would write little notes and we just rehearsed seven days a week for 14 hours and we ended up just putting the show up because we remember what we were doing in that moment. But the scripts, they don't exist, right? That's something that Frida Scott Giles and I talked, you know, scholar Frida Scott Giles, uh, we talked about a lot. Frida actually worked with Glenda on many of her earlier productions, you know, Madame Zora, Jump at the Sun. But, but I can actually answer your question a little bit more succinctly here. So Glenda, one of her final projects that I actually do analyze because I have the videos and I have the scripts mm -hmm. was her Kitchen Prayer series. Yes, thank her you. Kitchen Prayer series. 
her Kitchen Prayer series is, to just to give an overview, it is, it is a trilogy of plays that were inspired by the tragedy of 9-11. Linda, you know, she was already in the midst of creating these performances, and she was interested in using theater as a way to really continue what she's been doing. And that is to use theater as a way to insert those who are on the margins, historically, Black women in particular, and put them at the center of the discourse. And performance for her was a way in which to do that. But I also want to acknowledge that Glenda was inspired to do this type of work by one of her, not mentors, but someone she revered, and that was Zorno Hurston. Mm -hmm. And so Glenda was interested in using performance as a way to preserve the history and culture and traditions of a people, and in particular using their own words. So Glenda, you know, she started developing the Kitchen Prayer series after 9-11, and each play took on a different topic. The first play was about looking at the ways in which Black women were not considered to be victims of 9-11, right. right? When this went at, and she created a play where Black, I think it was six or seven Black women, including herself, they were giving testimonies about where they were, what happened, and how they were affected by 9-11. The second play broadened out a little bit to, and she began to really theorize this idea of war. Right, mm. so 9-11, the response to war, um, well, excuse me, well, 9-11, and then there's the, you know, the, the aftermath is that we go to war. And then, and so Glenda really began to theorize about this idea of war. And she's like, you know, we're thinking of war in this context of two, you know, territories fighting each other, ultimately for power. And Glenda says, but women, globally, we have been at war forever. And, and, and she began to really expand those idea of war. And she began to look at women in various periods throughout history and the ways in which they have suffered in response to actual wars and how there's a war on women because of things such as sexual assault and violence, you know, lack of resources and education because of how religion has been used as, as a weapon yes. to dominate women. Um, yeah, and that was the, the, the second play in the trilogy. And the third play, interestingly enough, she actually revisited an earlier play that she wrote with Brina Clark, um, Remembering Aunt Jemima, a minstrel play. This, that and, play is my introduction to her yeah. <laughs> and her work, yes. And interestingly enough, she, she revisits that play and, she, and, and to some degree she updates the topics that were discussed in that play. So in Remembering Aunt Jemima, you know, it really is a walk through history, right? Because Glenda and Brina Clark in Remembering Aunt Jemima, they're introducing us to these, you know, famous women in history. Well, let me, let me be very clear. Some of us who are, if you're familiar with these women, you know them, but it's, all, it's easy to be unaware of who these women are because of the ways in which they're not taught in history courses, um, in literature and so forth, right? And so she uses that model and she introduces us to, in this third play in the trilogy, entitled, the play is entitled um, Sapphire's New Shoe. Okay. And she introduces us to a host of women throughout history. So we meet Madame T.J. Walker, we meet Bessie Coleman, we meet Sergeant Bartman, also known as the, the Venus Hottentot. Mm -hmm. And we're also meeting, oh, we also meet Aunt Jemima, right? Aunt Jemima shows up, right? I mean, in fact, Aunt Jemima is the host um, of the, the dinner party. 
right? And they also, in addition to meeting these women, they're talking about issues that have oppressed women throughout history and that are still relevant today. So I know I, this is something I, I know existed and I don't know anything about. So there's a Trojan woman adaptation that I see listed as one of her one woman shows, but it's adapted for two voices. How, how does that connect with what you're talking about in terms of the reaction to war, the reaction to the continued oppression of women? Um, What can you tell me about that piece? So I so here's the, that's one of the pieces where I don't have you know I don't have a script, <laughs> and I have, guess. but I have reviews and things right so right you know you know trained as a historian what did what story or what narrative uh, you know can I pull out and create or rather what what are what are the sort of the hidden narratives within like reviews right and playbills mm-hmm. and also recording people and getting their stories and their their you know the, the oral narratives right right and cr- and constructing the story around that around what is available here's what i do know and glenda said this early on in one of her earlier writings and she says you know when you think about, uh, and she names like Clymenestra and Hecuba, right? The women in Greek theater. She's like, you know, when you take their stories and you put a black, put them through a black woman's, you know, allow black women to speak those words or an Asian woman to speak those words or a Latina woman to speak those words. What you recognize is race is not necessarily the central factor, but gender is mm-hmm. because women are, women have been oppressed throughout centuries across racial gen, uh, racial and class lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Glenda, and the Trojan Women is one of the, the, the pieces that she would revisit throughout her life, um, as early as the 70s and all the way up until when she died, right? Glenda, she created a one-woman piece that she performed. She created pieces for smaller cats, and she also took the script in its form, in its conventional form, and created productions around that as well. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Glenda was. She was also somebody who would who did one of the earlier artists to mount like Medea in Africa. Yeah, um, I think it was Haitian Medea. I think it was. Excuse me, back in the seventies, right? Um, so Glenda was, you know, taking the classics and recognizing how because of the central subject matter. If you think about the context of gender, they again cross you know racial lines and barriers. Yeah, what have you? learned from speaking with her peers and colleagues about her personality that you think we should know? I feel like when we go to write books, we don't often get to really tell the tales. (laughs) And, you know, um, I, Kathy Perkins always speaks of her with like kind of the the corner of her mouth turned up in a smile. (laughs) And I feel like those are the the stories that, and that's the the feeling that we don't always get on the page. I'm curious what you would want us to know that you've gleaned from these other people who worked with her and, you know, are her friends, are her colleagues. How would, what would you want us to know about her, who she is? So it's interesting. I've interviewed a lot of people and plan to interview many, many more Kathy Perkins is one of them, Frida Scott Giles, Vera Katz. I've interviewed Paul Jackson. I've interviewed Harry Elam. I've interviewed Surrette Scott, Debbie Allen, Woody King, Brina Clark. Oh, you know, just a couple people. You know, just a lot of people. And I think, you know, Rhonda McLean Nora, you know, who was a student of hers when Glinda was pioneering workshops for careers in the arts, which eventually became, I think it was a Western high school for the arts, which eventually became 
Duke Ellington School for the Arts, right? Oh, okay. Glenda was the first principal or dean. You know, at that time, I think they were using the term dean of Duke Ellington. But no, so, so I, I interviewed a lot of people and all of them said Glenda was tough. Glenda was direct. Glenda was fun, but the work was important. Mm-hmm. Glenda also recognized as a black woman, she had to take it serious. And if you didn't take it serious, that created a problem. Mm. There were people who said Glenda was, you know, I mean, people have used, you know, you know, the terminology is wide in terms of how, what they, you know, people have said that she was, you know, overbearing, over the top. But here's the question, right? Brina Clark has talked about this. Kathy Perkins has talked about this. When a Black woman in particular is good at what she does, and not just good, but she's one of the best, and she's able to do it better than, the, than white men, mm-hmm. who, we, who we typically give the credit to. And I'm talking about theater now. Yeah. You know, we, we are easily and readily prepared to call her a bitch. And those are the names that she got. Problematic, yeah. Right, very problematic. And, and, but, but again, Glenda's not the first and not the only Black woman to go through that, right? Right. But I think for me, it just, it just acknowledges that she was the best at what she did. And she demanded perfection. And I, I think of how many doors that must have opened. Well, here's the, here's the thing, right? I, I think back to, again, you know, I think back to Glenda directing the works of those Black women playwrights. Mm-hmm. Glenda opened the door for so many people. You know, it's like you, 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 oh, this new playwright, she has this really wonderful play, get Glenda Dickerson on it. You know she's going to do a great job. She opens the door for so, for so many. I even think about people today, like Dominique Moriso, for instance, um, or who's, you know, well-known playwright. Um, or we think about Ruth Nicole Brown, who is a Black feminist scholar. They were students of Glenda, you know, Glenda's. And, and, and they both said, you know, Glenda taught me this. Glenda gave me this. But more emphatically, Glenda illustrated the ways in which Black women can succeed in the field, you know, be it theater, be it academia and so forth. Right. Mm. Thank you for that. I would like to just take a moment to ask you, uh, while we talk about the doors that Glenda Dickerson opened for so many other people and as a pedagogue, the the folks that she taught, could you just let us know who you are and who your mentors and teachers are? I mean, you've been through quite a few schools, quite a few degrees. <laughs> you've, you are building a, continuing to build and grow with a, a professional career. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you could just share who your teachers and mentors, who, who taught, first, who taught you about Glenda Dickerson? Where did you find her? So it's interesting. So I, so I went to Cheney University. I went to Cheney University of Pennsylvania, which is America's oldest historically black college. And my mentor there when I was in theater was a professor named Jan Ellis Scruggs, who is, um, she's, she's, in addition to being a theater professor, she's retired now. Um, she was an actress, performer, and she, you know, filmed television. It's funny because my introduction to her before I got to Cheney was the Viox commercial. I don't know if y'all remember that, V-I-O-X-X. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. Vioxx commercial. She was the woman walking down the steps. And then the next thing you saw her in the classroom with the students making like paper mache or something. That was my mentor. In addition to that, I was mentored by the founder of the chain of chain university's theater program, which was Edith Scott Bagley, mm. who was the sister of Coretta Scott King. Um, and you know, she retired way before I got to Cheney, but I met her through Professor Scruggs, um, and I ended up working with her and she and I created a, you know, really wonderful relationship all around theater, black life, black liberation. And when she died, in fact, I was one of the folks sitting up there in the days with the King family and spoke and so forth at her funeral. Her son, um, invited me to speak at the funeral and so forth, but it was because of Mrs. Bagley and my opportunity changed that I ended up going to Miami University for graduate school. And that's where I met Paul Bryant Jackson, who is, who was my mentor, my professor, my life coach. Um, He was very much like um, a second, I had, my father was very much around. In fact, my my father met Dr. Jackson when I moved to Ohio for graduate school. He was like a second father, you know, and in many ways, like a best friend. Um, and Dr. Jackson passed away in 2018. I think it was August 7th or August 8th, 2018. Interestingly enough, I get my PhD at University of Maryland and some of the other folks who I consider to be mentors, Phaedra Shatar Carpenter, who was my dissertation advisor, Scott Reese, who um, I TA'd for, and in fact, I spoke to him the other day. Um, we still have a really wonderful relationship. Oh, and, and, I, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention, um, I even think about people like Isaiah Matthew Wooden, yep. LaDonna Forsgren, Baron Kelly, mentors. Yeah. Oh, oh, I, oh, and I, and I cannot mention, um, Sandra Shannon, who I've had the pleasure to work with. A mentor to all of us. Right, right. She's a mentor. She is. Dr. Shannon is a mentor to all of us. Yes. And I had the privilege of working with her as the vice president and colloquium planner for the August Wilson Society. But actually, a lot of you don't know that Dr. Shannon was actually on my dissertation committee. Because of school policy and things that shifted like the, from the year that I invited her to the year that I defended, you know, between that those years, I had to... Um, ended up pulling her off, but she was on my committee. Yeah, if you don't know that. So she was a part of my first defense when I had to defend the proposal, yeah. Oh, and I also have to mention Esther Kimley. I would not be where I am without, you know, them. But I, I really quickly, Dr. Jackson, I miss him every day. I, there are moments where I actually look up and I go, you left me. I am so angry with you, you left me. And then there are moments where I go, you know, in the context of the African diaspora, Yoruba cosmology, and August Wilson, Dr. Jackson, I would talk about this. Mm-hmm. He, he always would say, you know, the ancestors can do more for you as an ancestor than they can on this earth. And I realized like all of the fortune, all the things that I've gotten, including my work around Glenda, Dr. Jackson inspired me to do my dissertation on Glenda. He was, they were colleagues at Spelman. And he, and I recognize that a lot of the things that I have that I, you know, the fortune and the opportunity that I'm gaining, it is because Dr. Jackson as an ancestor is opening the door. Well, I I will say, when I learned of his passing, you were the first person I thought of. I think I reached out to you. Almost. You did, yes. You did. <laughs> um, but yeah. I, I mean, I, I want you to know how many of us realize that um, his his legacy is so strong with yes. you. Um, yes. Yeah. I am 
very grateful for that. Um, I think I'm just going to leave some space for that here right now um, and close with that. But there's a question that I ask everyone um, that I have as a guest on the podcast that may not in any way relate to Glenda Dickerson. Um, And I ask everyone, uh, this is actually, gosh, Paul, he was one of the people who actually was very fervent in early conversations about developing a black canon. Yeah. Um, and what would be in the black canon. And so I'm just culling all of my guests to ask them uh, if there was to be one play. I know you can't pick one, but if you were to pick one play that you think belongs in the capital B, capital C, black canon, what what would it be? Oh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer this way. A Raisin in the Sun is perhaps my favorite play. And I love, there's a lot of plays I've seen, read, you know, directed and so forth, you know, sort of the dramaturg for. But the one play that I saw that I think comes close to Raisin in terms of being one of my favorites, but also just being that good, mm-hmm. um, is Christine Anderson's play, How to Catch Creation. Mm. Mm. Yeah, How to Catch Creation. I saw it at the Goodman Theater. I'm writing a piece on it now. It is a play about Black joy. It is a play about Black queer experiences. But more emphatically, it is a play that is a testament to the notion that through a Black queer lens, possibilities are endless. Mm. (laughs) Dr. Khaled Long, thank you so very much for your time. I really appreciate you. you. This has been a joy. And I've learned so much. There's, I've... (laughs) It's, it's been great. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate this. Thank you for having me. That was scholar, educator, and artist, Dr. Khaled Long, who spoke with us today via Zoom about the work and legacy of Glenda Dickerson. This is the Black Theatre History Podcast. I'm KB Sane. Our podcast is produced by Equity Justice Productions and edited by Jeremiah Turner. Our music is by Kaya Caterhurst from the album Nine Pin, which can be purchased at nearly every place you can find artist music. If you like the work we're doing here, you can find details about how to support the podcast and information about episode commissions and sponsorship at www.blacktheaterhistory.com. That's theater with an R-E. Educators who wish to use these podcasts in the classroom can link to them directly from our website. Please subscribe to the Black Theatre History Podcast on Audible, Apple Podcasts, and other streaming services, and do leave us a review. Your feedback helps get the podcast in front of other folks who don't yet know about us. You can also find us on Facebook at Black Theatre History Podcast. Thank you to all of you, our listeners, and a special thank you to my friends and colleagues at the Black Theatre Network. We're all in this together, friends, and we've got a lot more to learn. Thanks for listening. You're